Wonderful. Well, if you have your Bible, our sermon text this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11. I want to encourage you to turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can find a Black Pew Bible there in front of you. And the page today is 244. Uh, I gave you a little bit of a forewarning last week that beginning this week, we're going to be taking a little bit of a negative turn in our series. We've been going through First and Second Samuel. There's been all kinds of wonderful highs in David's life, but we're now about to enter into some of his lowest moments, beginning with this one. Uh, it's a very famous story. Uh, the stories that follow it um, aren't maybe quite as famous, but they are equally, if not more, dark. And so uh, the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at some difficult topics, ones that we don't often like to talk about, and yet they are very, very important if you're going to understand what Jesus Christ came to do. If you're going to understand Christianity and how to be a Christian, you've got to deal with these things. And so we're going to read today the whole chapter, uh, this verses 1 through 27. If you'll take a look and follow along, let's hear the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliim, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fight, and then draw back 
from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he, he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. I told you it was heavy, it's grim, and it's dark. I've been reading a, a book over the past year about Dwight D. Eisenhower and about his presidency in the 1950s. And one of the things I was interested to learn about him was after World War II, remember, you know, and if you don't know, if you're too young to know or don't remember your history lessons, Dwight Eisenhower was a great general in World War II. He led many of the greatest battles that America fought during that war. But after the war was over, when he was president in the 50s, this man, he had developed such a distaste for war that he did everything in his power to avoid any more battles. Uh, he avoided conflicts in many parts of the world that he could have entered into. But one of the ways he did it was he started another war without weapons, which we today know as the Cold War. This was a war that didn't take place on the battlefield. It took place... Well, who knows where it is? I mean, there could be spies anywhere, right? That's the Cold War. They were, they were jostling back and forth for information. They were, yes, building very big weapons, but mainly they were in order to fend off the threat of war rather than to actually engage in it. Dwight Eisenhower did this because of how much he had come to hate battle and hate war. He realized one war was over, and so in order to avoid other wars, he fought a very different war on very different terms with very different strategies. Well, this story about David reminds me of that. 
we see in verses 1 and 2 that David, after having won so many victories, also seems to be in a similar position that Dwight Eisenhower was in. He, he doesn't want to go back out to war at all. He stays at home. He sends out his men, and he stays back on his couch. But here's the difference, and this is something that everybody in this room needs to listen to this morning because this is vital to your life. David fails to understand that though he was not on the battlefield, there was another battle at his gates. A cold war, the coldest of cold wars, the war with sin. And David, instead of changing gears from fighting on the battlefield to fighting with sin in his heart, instead lets his guards down. And y'all, I want you to hear this, if it can happen to David... It can happen to you, and it can happen to me. The most serious thing, as John Owen, the the great Puritan, said, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. If you're not fighting sin actively in your life, it will kill you. It will find a way. It found a way with David, the man after God's own heart, and it can find the way with you, and yet there's a place that you and I this morning can learn to look to in order to find the resources to fight this coldest of cold wars. If you'll look at your bulletin, we're going to look at three things about this sin that battles against us and where we should turn. First of all, we're going to see how sin develops, how it tries to take us captive. We see that with David. Secondly, we're going to see how sin always defiles and destroys. There's never any other outcome with sin. But then finally, we're going to see how sin displeases the Lord. And yet, that might not seem like a solution, but actually the solution is found in remembering that. All right, so first of all, sin develops. Secondly, sin defiles and destroys. And lastly, sin displeases God. First of all, sin develops in the most subtle of ways sometimes. And yet its goal is always the same, total mastery. Total captivity. Uh, Sin is wanting to take complete control over your mind, complete control over your heart, so that it can take complete control over your life. Notice David uh, in verses 1 and 2. We've already mentioned it. It doesn't seem like he's doing anything wrong. In in fact, um, most of us would dream of an outcome like this. Uh, To be able to retire from our, our labors and just lay on our couch of rest. Notice how it's in the early afternoon and he gets up from his couch. I mean, sometimes we dream about these things. It seems so good to be that early in the day and yet we're just lounging around the house. And yet it tells us this was in the spring of the year when all the other kings were going out to battle and David, instead of going out, stayed in. David remained at Jerusalem. Uh, There was a subtle neglect of his calling, a subtle neglect of the responsibilities that God had laid on him as king. This was the number one job of a king in this time in the world, to to defend and to fight the battles for your people. And David, instead of being out there, was in here, lounging on his couch. And it tells us in verse 2, when he got up from his couch, he went to his roof. And there, you know, We might not understand that today. If you go out on the roof today, you're trying to fix something. (laughs) Or you're hanging up Christmas lights. That's not then. I mean, in in Israel, in the ancient world, every rooftop was a room of the house. Roofs were flat. 
And that's the, the place people went to rest because there was a breeze, there was fresh air, getting out from all the stale air inside. Uh, think about today, the big you know, high-rises in big cities, they'll often have gardens or bars or restaurants on the, on the roof. That's the way that, that everyone lived in Israel in this time. David goes from his couch to his resting room. And he wanders around the room looking out over the city. David's house was on a hill, and the hill overlooked a valley. And in that valley were many houses with many other roofs and many other windows open. And it says that David saw a woman bathing. And in David's eyes, that woman was very beautiful. Now, let's be careful here. In fact, the text tells us in verse 4 why Bathsheba had been bathing. And there's a reason why it tells us that. It says in verse 4, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Now, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but in the book of Leviticus, to the Jews, was given the law of cleanliness. And part of the clean laws was when a woman was in her monthly period, she had to, after that, wash a certain way in order to be qualified again to go back into the temple to worship. Bathsheba was bathing for that purpose. Um, contrary to what maybe you've been told before, this text does not blame Bathsheba for this event. Uh, Bathsheba, if anything, is considered in this passage innocent in the matter. Uh, it does not tell you, for example, that Bathsheba was on her roof taking a bath. It says David was on his, and he from his roof saw her, wherever she was, bathing in obedience to the commandments of God. And yet, notice how sin's working inside David's heart. Notice how it's working. David is just trying to take a rest, he thinks. And yet, in that rest, he's letting his guard down. And this always happens. When you and I neglect the responsibilities of our lives, when we habitually neglect the things that God has obviously called us to do, the simple things, the little things, sin finds a way. David saw, it says, four verbs to to drive sin deep into his heart. He saw, he inquired about her. He entertained his thoughts and wanted to know more about this beautiful woman that he saw. And then finally, the most dastardly verb of them all, he took her. He saw, he inquired, and he took what did not belong to him. Now, if you'll believe me, those same two verbs, two of the three verbs, are the same verbs found in Genesis 3 for the sin that Eve committed. She saw the tree, that it was pleasant to the eye, it was beautiful, it was, looked delicious, it was good to make one wise, and she took, and she ate, and she gave some to her husband who took and ate. This is the anatomy of how sin works right here. It tells you exactly the, the path that sin takes. It enters in through a subtle avenue. Sometimes it's your eyes. Sometimes it's your ears. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, wrote another allegory called The Holy War, which is very little known, but it's, it's very good, too. And he's talking about the spiritual battle that takes place in every person's life. And he, and he says, there was this city called Mansoul. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, you know he names things in an obvious manner. He's not a subtle you know, writer. 
There was a city called Mansoul, and it was made for the pleasure of Shaddai. And yet Diablos took over the city and stole it from Shaddai. And you know how he did in that story? He entered into Mansoul through the eye gate. That's the way Bunyan puts it. And that's what happens here, right? That's what happened with Eve. That's what happened with Adam, through the eye gate. And, and this is so true of all of us. What your eyes see, what you let your eyes see, leads to a lot of places. Because it allows to enter in lots of thoughts. And sin works through thoughts, first of all. It tries to capture the mind. And then it moves down to try to capture the very heart and the desires so that it can capture the will. So that it can make you want to violate what God has told you to do or to not, you know, to not do what he's told you to do and to, to do what he has told you not to do. And then finally, when it makes you desire it, it captures you and your entirety and your thoughts and your actions and your words become captive to not Shaddai, not God who you were made for, but Diablos, Satan, who is the enemy of your soul, though he pretends to be your friend. This is the way it always works. If you don't believe me, James chapter 1 is really kind of a script for what's going on here in, uh, in the book of Samuel. In fact, you may want to put your finger in 2 Samuel 11 and go with me to James 1, which is in the New Testament. I don't, sorry, I don't have the Pew Bible page, but there you go. Thank you. 950, uh, James chapter 1. Look at verse 13. Let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a little script of what's happening inside of David, right? Uh, sin enters in. Sin captures his desires, which were evil. Sin then moves to conceive itself in the will of David, who begins to make plans. And finally, sin will hatch death in David's life and in David's family because of what he's done. Sin always works in the same way. Satan is not creative. <laughs> Satan does not have many new tricks. And Frankly, he doesn't need them because they're still working. He enters through the eye gate. He enters through the, the ear gate, perhaps, or some other gate or avenue in your life. He gets you to neglect your duties for a time. He gets you to relax and let down your guard, and then suddenly he awakens a desire. He captures your mind with some thought. He, he, he leads you down some fantasy trail, and before you know it, you're doing things that no one would have imagined that you would do, let alone yourself. Who would have imagined? I mean, think back to last week and the week before and the week before that. I mean, what did we talk about last week, for goodness sake? David caring for a crippled grandson of his enemy? Who would have thought David would do this? And yet sin does not fight fair. 
Sin fights dirty. And let me tell you, do not buy in to the idea that this world believes is so important that the best life is a life free from responsibility. It's a life free from obligations. Oh, no. Your responsibilities that God has given you, your obligations are his gift to restrain your heart. Uh, we, one writer says, we today have replaced the shoulds, which is what people used to live by, with coulds. And that is a bigger burden than the shoulds. We thought, if we get rid of the shoulds, and I have all these coulds, I could do this or that or that, or maybe I could do this, then, then we would be free. But here's what we found. Coulds are a heavier burden than shoulds. Embrace the shoulds. Embrace the shoulds. Are you a husband? Do what you should. Are you a wife? Do what you should. Are you a kid? Do what you should. Are you a church member? Do what you should. Are you a Christian? Do what you should. No mind the coulds. Let God deal with the coulds. Do the shoulds. David let go of the shoulds for the coulds. Yes, he was king. He could sit on his couch in the middle of the afternoon. He could walk around the roof and see every woman in the kingdom. And he hung himself with his own rope. Another thing I thought about is, oh, please don't let people make you feel ashamed for being overly strict with yourself in what you're willing to look at, in what you're willing to read and bring into your mind, what you're willing to say and do, the company you're willing to keep. Don't let people make you ashamed of that. Those are blessings. Those are good things. The world is not going to understand it. Don't, don't, don't expect them to. Don't expect them to. They don't take it seriously because they're captive to it. But we're called not to be captive to it, which means you can't be too careful with your eyes or your ears or your mind. Jesus said if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Pluck it out. That's the first thing. That's how sin develops. How subtle, how tricky. But notice in the second place how sin defiles and destroys. This is the tricky thing about sin. Uh, I know many of us enjoy fishing. How do you catch a fish? You trick him. Isn't that right? That's the whole thing. That's the whole gig. Um, you don't just throw a hook out there. You hide the hook under something that looks juicy and good, right? One old, old minister who is also a very avid fisherman wrote a little poem about it. He said, when the timorous trout I, I wait to take... And he devours my bait. How poor a thing I sometimes find will captivate a greedy mind. How poor a thing, how, how stupid a thing will capture a greedy mind and a greedy heart. Sin promises life. Sin promises pleasure. Sin promises ease. Sin promises accolades. Sin promises all these great things. But that is hiding the hook beneath. And no sooner does our greedy heart grab the bait than we are gut hooked, deeply hooked by sin. 
David, it tells us, sought to cover up his sin. He added sin to sin. He called Uriah in. You can, we read the whole story from verse 6 on. You know how he called Uriah. He tried to convince him to go to his, his family's house. Why? He's trying to cover up what he did. Because Uriah has now conceived a child. He won't go. Why won't Uriah go? Because Uriah is the only honorable man in the story. Yeah. Right? Uriah says, no, I'm in, I'm in battle. I'm a soldier. I'm under orders. My brothers are out there fighting. How am I supposed to spend, you know, leisurely nights at home? I'm not going to do it. David gets him drunk, and he still won't do it. Wow. What integrity, actually. I mean, if you want to look at somebody in the story to model after, pick Uriah, the Hittite. He's not even an Israelite, for goodness sake. And yet, he's got honor. He's got integrity. David will not be stopped, though. And this is the part that just kills me. This is the part that humbles me. Because David, David is so careful with people's lives, usually. He cared for a crippled boy or young man. He hated it. When the guy came and said, I killed Saul, he hated it. David was not one that liked the unjust taking of life. But notice what he does. Send Uriah to the front and let him die. Make sure he dies. Cover this up. Get it out of my sight. Get it out of everybody's sight. David was caught. Sin said, a little bit of pleasure one afternoon, David. That's all I'm here to give you. And where did it lead him? Bathsheba's defiled, although she had been trying to keep herself clean. David is defiled. The kingdom is defiled. Uriah is dead. Bathsheba is left to mourn. I want to tell you, sin will come to you with words, as the scripture says, smoother than oil, Sweeter than honey, but in the end, it's bitter as wormwood. It'll lure you in with seductions and promises of wonderful afternoons spent in pleasure, or nights, or mornings, or whatever the case may be. But in the end, you will be like a deer caught fast and pierced through your liver, as it says in the book of Proverbs. Reason? You want to know why that's the case? It's simple. Sin promises to give you things that are only promised through obedience to God. And sin is disobedience to God. You see, blessing is only designed to come through obedience to God. That's the only way. Human life is... I mean, think about Genesis. God said, and it was so, and it was good. God said, and it was so, and it was good. And so in your life, it's only going to be good if God says it, and it's so. Because you do it. Sin says, don't do it, and it'll be good. It lies. It is fork-tongued. It's a hook covered with a juicy worm. But it will end up catching you, gutting you, making you do things you never imagined, and in the end it will leave you, well, to pick up the pieces and it won't help you pick them up. Don't you see, David, how far he fell I mean, verse 25 just breaks my heart. 
David said coldly to Joab, don't let this matter displease you. This is not, y'all, this is not David. This is not David. This is not what he's usually like, but sin has done this to him. He's given in to sin, and this is what the result is. Don't worry, uh, Joab, and he basically says, you win some and you lose some. The sword now devours one, and now it devours another. You win some, you lose some, Joab. People died, yeah. Mistakes were made, yeah. And if you don't think sin will do that to you, then you don't know sin, and you don't know you. And I don't know me, and I don't know sin, if I don't think he can do it to me. As we read earlier in the scripture lesson, if Peter can deny Jesus, and now we're reading, if David can deny Jesus, I know I can. This leads us to our last thing this morning, which is that sin displeases. This is actually where a little turn to hope begins. And I promise next week we're going to get more of this hope as God confronts David about this. But I want you to notice how in verses 26 and 27, what David urged Joab not to be displeased with, God makes it clear that he finds it displeasing. Now, displeased seems very weak to me. I'm displeased, right? It's like, eh. I, I don't like it. No, the, the, the actual phrase, and I'm, I'm not really sure why not many Bibles, I think it's only the New American Standard Bible that translates it this way, but this is literally what it says. The thing was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so, for example, back in verse 24, David had said to Joab, don't let this matter be evil in your eyes. And here it says, the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that's stronger, and I think that gets more to the heart of it. You see, here's the thing. David tried to cover up his sin, and then David tried to make up for his sin. Right? How did he try to cover it up? He got rid of Uriah. How did he try to make up for it? It tells us in verse 26, or 27, he sent for Bathsheba when the morning was over, and he brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Okay, so he took her in. He's trying to make up for what he had done. He tried to cover it up. He tried to make it up. But the bottom line, literally in this chapter, the bottom line is the thing that David had done was evil in the eyes of God. And that, my friends, you can never change. No amount of cover-up and no amount of makeup can make sin pleasing to God. And that's what we have to remember. Every action, every thought, every word is seen by him. His eyes are watching always in everything. And everything we do is either A, good in his eyes or evil in his eyes. There is no middle ground. There is no gray area. When it comes to this, there is just evil or good. And God is the judge of it. And when it's evil in God's eyes, there's nothing you can humanly do to wash it away. It's like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare's play who had, ki- who had killed. And at night, she had this nightmare that her hands were covered with blood. And she was trying to scrub the, the, the blood off her hands. 
And the more she scrubbed, the more bloody it became. And actually her crying out in her dream is what got her caught. She could not wash the stain. And you can't either. You cannot wash the stain of your sin. I cannot wash the stain of my sin. I can't cover it and I can't make up for it. It doesn't matter how many good deeds you do. You'll never outweigh your bad deeds. Ever. You cannot cover it. You cannot hide it. You cannot make what is evil good and what is good evil. God assesses. Listen, this is clarity for the confused today. And I know there, there are many of us who are confused about what is right and wrong in this world. But it ought not to be so. It's not any, anybody's fault but our own that we're confused. Because God has said, this is good and this is evil in my eyes. And it's before my eyes that you live. Listen, this is also encouragement for the wronged. Bathsheba has been wronged. Isn't it a good thing that God had been watching? She didn't have the king to defend her because the king was the one who wronged her. A miscarriage of justice. And yet the thing displeased God and he wasn't going to let it go. We'll, We'll see how he doesn't let it go in the coming weeks. But I want to tell you too, there's hope for sinners in this phrase. There's hope for sinners. You see, because when you start talking about the eyes of God watching and determining whether things are good or bad, you remember that in Scripture we see not only is God watching with eyes of judgment, but the Bible reveals, especially in Jesus Christ, that God watches sinners with eyes of compassion and with eyes of grace and mercy and pleas of repentance and and invitations to faith and to receive forgiveness and new life. In fact, Romans 5 says that whereas one man's disobedience led everybody to die. That's talking about Adam. One man disobeyed and everybody died and everybody became corrupt. Yet through one man's obedience, through Jesus, everybody can be made righteous and be made alive. Sinners can be made clean because he obeyed. Jesus, who is tempted in every way like we are, like David was, sinned not. What I'm telling you this morning is we have a king greater than David. Amen? A king who did not spend his days lounging around looking for opportunity. A king who did not look at people and think, how can I take from them? Jesus looked and thought, how can I give to them? In fact, there's a pattern in the Gospels where these same verbs are used. Jesus will look at a person or at a crowd And then it says he will have compassion on them. And then it says he will go and heal. Very opposite of David here. The the exact flip. David looked, inquired, and took. Jesus Christ looks, has compassion, and gifts. And if you know that you have a God who sent his son to do that, what better incentive is there to let go your sin? What better incentive is there to confess your sin? What better reminder is there to be watchful over your life for sin? Because he died to set you free from it. He doesn't want you to be captive anymore. Uh, In John Bunyan's story, man's soul under the captivity of Diablos is rescued by the power of Emmanuel. And I want to tell you this morning that Emmanuel, 
stands waiting. Emmanuel stands calling to you and to me and to everybody. Come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me. You will not find rest on your couch or on your rooftop or in the arms of that forbidden one. Or you will not find rest in the greed. You will not find rest in the stealing or in the lying or in the disobedience. You will not find rest there. But you'll find rest in me, Jesus says. Because I conquered. I obeyed. I looked and I didn't take. I looked and I didn't inquire for my own advantage. I looked. I had compassion. And I gave. And I gave until I had no more left to give. Come to me. Amen? Sin develops. Sin destroys and defiles, but sin displeases God, which means there's hope. Because there is a God. And here we are as sinners with yet another opportunity to look to His eyes and to ask what He wants and to seek His mercy on us. 